Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary screen-based interactive world. I'm your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So today, I wanted to let you know that I really like round numbers. So I was trying really hard to make it to episode 50 before I announced that Design EDU today is going on a hiatus. Once I realized that it was going to be harder making it to episode 50 than I wanted, I decided that I'm just going to announce the hiatus so I can get some things done and get back to making the podcast. It was at that point that I noticed my next scheduled release marks the two-year anniversary of this podcast almost to the day. So instead of just announcing the hiatus, I've decided to do a reflection on what I've learned over the two years of interviews. If you tuned in to hear me interview a guest, that's not going to happen in this episode. Rather, this episode is going to be me talking about the top five takeaways that I've learned from the past two years from doing this podcast. However, Before I get into the takeaways, I want to briefly talk about the need for the hiatus. When I first started the podcast, the website was a complete afterthought. I had no idea how many episodes I was going to record, what the format was going to be like, what type of guests I wanted to interview, how many of those guests I was going to interview at once. Um, The list goes on and on. All I knew at the time was I wanted to demonstrate how much the field of graphic design has changed and how a print design program isn't enough to prepare designers entering the industry today. I also knew I wanted to have transcripts of the interviews for accessibility reasons on the website and to make it easy for design educators to cite portions of the conversations and papers and academic journals. Needless to say, Since I didn't have too many plans, the website didn't serve too many needs. With the benefit of hindsight, there is a lot more the website can do to enhance the value of the podcast, make it easier to identify topics of specific interest to the listener, and all around make it easier for me to maintain. However, to do this properly, I not only deliver greater value for future episodes, I need to go back and review the 46 current episodes. So in addition to creating a new layout, coding the site, and picking the best CMS to automate the production process, I've got lots and lots of writing to do. I need time to do all this, but I don't know how much exactly. Maybe a month? Maybe two? I don't really know for certain, but I want to be back up with the new website and new episodes as quickly as possible, hopefully by September. So check back often or feel free to contact me and ask for an update. I'll try to keep the Facebook and Twitter pages up to date as well on the progress, but social media isn't exactly a a habit for me quite yet. So now that the housekeeping is out of the way, I'm going to go over my top five takeaways that I hope you got as well from listening to the podcast these past two years. Takeaway number one, just enough HTML and CSS. So I had preconceived notions going into this research project. The first 
and perhaps biggest was the ratio of how much front-end development graphic designers needed to know to be successful in the industry. At one point, I was teaching HTML, CSS, and JavaScript while teaching students to use SAS and GitHub for managing the process. We even got into specifics on performance and testing their responsive layouts across multiple devices and platforms. This was too much in too short a time for students' first exposure to the medium. And since most graphic design programs only dedicate one course to cover everything an interactive designer needs to know, my approach never left time to cover actual interactive design principles. From the Design EDU Today interviews, it became clear that it wasn't necessary for entry-level designers to have the in-depth knowledge necessary to be a front-end developer. What I did find was that graphic designers need to know the medium of HTML and CSS. By understanding how HTML and CSS function, they are better able to design for its full potential. For example, HTML I consider is or the structure layer and CSS is the presentation layer. A parallel in the print design world would be paper is the structure and ink is the presentation. Once you truly understand these two fundamentals, you know the medium's limitations. This understanding opens the door for enhancements via the third layer, which is behavior. You control the way things behave on the web via JavaScript. It's what makes images, um, image sliders, sticky navigations, navigation lists, change, you know, on click or scroll, etc. So all that interaction. A print design equivalent would be like spot varnishes, foil stamps, embossing, laser engraving, die cuts, etc. Once you know what you can, can and can't do with the medium, you can then leverage it in unexpected ways. The other pre preconceived notion I had was the level of testing visual designers do with their designs in an actual browser to ensure proper typographic hierarchy and smooth transitions from multiple columns to single column grids. It may seem counterintuitive, but the interactive designs you create in design programs such as Adobe's Experience Design and Bohemian Coding Sketch don't look like what they will actually look like once they are coded and live in a browser, even though they are created on a screen and oftentimes a similar size screen. The print design parallel is designing a poster on a computer screen and then realizing the hierarchy and the typography does not reflect the screen version because it's too big, too small, too similar, etc on the full-size printed version. The same thing happens in interactive design with an added twist. The fact that design needs to be responsive. Today there are a litany of popular screen sizes, not just within the Apple product universe, such as the popular iPhone 5S or the latest iPhone 7 and 7 Plus, but you also have the LG Samsung and Google Canon of mobile devices. We can't forget the huge number of tablet devices either. Amazon, Apple, and Samsung are all major players in this market. You can throw Windows in there too. 
So in print design, to test the poster, you need to print up a full-size, low-fidelity mock-up to ensure that your design choices are appropriate. I wrongly assumed that design students needed a huge device lab containing as many of the different devices out there to test their designs on, sort of like you, they would with printing that poster out. This also meant that design students needed to learn HTML and CSS to a sophisticated enough degree that they could create their designs so they could be tested in the browser across all these different devices. Hence, my approach to teaching interactive design mimicked instruction for front-end developers. Based on the many conversations for this podcast, um, through testing of designs across devices and platforms, um, thorough design, thorough testing of design across devices and platforms was a job that falls more on the front-end developer. However, this doesn't excuse designers from looking at their designs on actual devices, just like the end users need to. Many designers I interviewed said that while there is a steep learning curve, most can look at a layout and immediately spot where the design may fail when being viewed on different devices. However, designers still need to create a prototype of their designs to view on different devices to get a general sense if the font they are using is the right size for the user and if the three-column grid used on the large screen design still holds up on a small screen. Fortunately, the interactive design software industry has already come up with a few tools for this right now with more accurate and sophisticated tools being released regularly. However, as an educator, creating a design that seamlessly flows across every device is my biggest source of frustration. Because of responsive design, you can't just create a single iPhone 7 Plus sized mock-up, an iPad Air sized mock-up, a 15-inch laptop sized mock-up, and use prototyping tools such as Envision or Adobe XD to view your static mock-up um, on a device. This method won't help you realize that your design for the 15-inch laptop is too small for a 27-inch monitor and is too big for an 11-inch Chromebook. So currently, the only high-fidelity way for designers to test designs is by learning enough HTML and CSS to get their layouts into a browser or create a mock-up at the actual size of over 24,000 different sized devices that the end user may have to test in something like Envision or XD, which is not going to happen. <laughs> so the good news, though, on the horizon are new tools like the Anima app plugin for Sketch and Affinity Designer. These programs let you create a single artboard and pin your elements in place. And then when you resize the artboard, the elements are resized to fit the remaining space based on where they were pinned. This sort of mimics the behavior of HTML and CSS in the browser at a fairly high fidelity. But as I said, there are only two examples of software that allow this currently. Okay, takeaway number two, the designer's toolbox. The designer's toolbox is drastically changed. Gone are the days when a all a designer needed to know was Illustrator, InDesign, and Photoshop. 
When the profession shifted from predominantly print work to interactive work, InDesign became a largely obsolete tool, awkwardly replaced by Photoshop for layout until Bohemian Coding's Sketch came along as an interface layout tool. This happened because InDesign, even though a fantastic layout tool for print design, isn't a good layout tool for interface design. And if you argue that, just go talk to a front-end developer and they'll give you the exact reason why. But there are many reasons for this in general, but the biggest is it doesn't work with the language of the web. There are no pica, there are no picas or points in CSS. In CSS, you work in pixels, M's, and percentages. So front-end developers who get an InDesign file to recreate with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript are getting something that's quite frankly a foreign language to them that they either have to like spend billable time to translate or the designer must spend extra time creating a document that has the necessary specs for the developers again on billable time to understand what you know the what the end goal is to compensate for the new language of the web there are a ton of new tools with more being created every day to help designers work in an interactive screen-based industry Bohemian Coding Sketch was an early pioneer that let interactive designers work with native units like pixels, and it made it easy for designers to work in a workflow that natively includes common screen sizes. Another early pioneer was Envision. Their software platform lets designers upload their sketch files through a web interface and create clickable prototypes, something that you can't do with InDesign, that can be sent to others on the design team for feedback or to the client for approval. InVision has even made it easy for the developer to export the necessary assets such as images, icons, and some simple CSS styles from those uploaded sketch files, totally negating the need for a written guide that would be necessary when sending over a file created in InDesign. Of the new tools, one task is seriously untapped, and that's version control. Developers have a tool called Git that allows them to version track their code by tracking changes to the code and then showing the changes between each commit. Git also allows a team of developers to work together. For example, one developer working on a feature could create a branch essentially a copy of the project, and create the code for the requested feature without affecting the code in the main branch. Once the developer is done, they would create what's called a pull request to have the code that they created for their feature merged back into the main branch. The developer working on the main branch could then review the pull request, look to see if the new feature would affect the code that was being worked on in the main branch, and accept the pull request or create an issue comment asking for something to be tested and fixed before ex, uh, accepting the pull request to merge the two branches. However, for visual designers working in teams, this level and this type of version control and ability to share is basically nearly impossible. But most of the designers I talked to working at firms or in remote teams said that all of the the designers work on the same files together at the same time. 
So to accommodate this type of collaboration, most firms have, you know, work ad hoc um, by using their own file server or using a file sharing service like Dropbox and Google Drive. However, this doesn't let designers work on the same file at the same time while creating a history of the incremental changes that can be reviewed side by side. So designers at firms have each come up with their own proprietary naming convention for their files. For example, the original mock-up of a website will get saved as a version, then the next designer working on it will copy the original file and then save the new version with a name that shows it's newer than the original and indicate who was working on the file and when. A lot of times, some sort of written document um, or log will follow along the, with the ever-growing set of files with short notes of who did what and when. Fortunately, there's actually a new program out there called Folio App. Um, I'll put that in, in the notes. And what this new app does is it, it mimics that Git control, version control that developers had for writing code, where this new program, you know, it, every time you make a commit, it saves that change in a state. And you can leave instructions on what and, you know, what you were working on. And then the design team can go back and look at the history of every time a commit was made and see which um, version was what and see who was working on when. And it, it's, it's something that we should all be including in our, in our visual design toolbox because it gets rid of that awkward final version one, final version two, really final version, blah, 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 whatever you kind of add to the end of your file name to indicate where you're at. It just becomes a great way to um, track it. So that in, in addition to like really understanding sketch and some of the new um, plugins for sketch, such as the anima app, which I said mimics responsive design and craft uh, lets you do a lot of amazing things that you just really couldn't do um, any other way. All right, so here is takeaway number three. What designers are actually making. As I wrote in an earlier article titled Changes in Communication, the way we as a society communicate has drastically changed in the past 10 years. Because of this rapid change, many forms of visual communication have become outmoded, such as direct mail, brochures, and posters. Even static websites, still very much in use for things like coffee shops and yoga studios, are no longer in the realm of the graphic design industry. Now anyone can use a website builder such as Wix or WordPress and the many others along with a design template to create a static website for a business or an organization. So if graphic designers are no longer producing traditional visual communication pieces, just exactly what are they producing? Based on observations from my research, I like to split what graphic designers are currently doing into three categories. Branding, design, product design, and service design. 
the firms that focus on branding design will produce the visual identity of an organization. Um, this is nothing new. This would also, but this would also include working with startup companies to determine the company's name, the company's philosophy, in addition to the standard, you know, color palette, logo, and typography, etc., that will be applied to everything from apps to trade show displays. What was surprising to me about these types of firms, however, was how much work they actually outsource. Many either have an in, have independent contractors working in-house as front-end developers or engineers for things like app and website development, or they contract with specific front-end development and engineering firms that specialize in interactive design and development. The other two areas of focus for firms is what I like to term the, the creation of products such as Evernote, Todoist, and Blackboard, and the creation of services such as Lyft and OrderUp that may be accessed through a website but are not simply static brochure-style websites. Um, before I go in-depth about the product and services, I want to clarify the, the difference between a product or service and a brochure-style website, since they can be accessed the same way. A universal example is Google's Gmail. When you, example, when you um, access Gmail through a web browser, you are technically assessing that website, but that website is doing much more than providing static information about an organization. Through Gmail, you can send and receive communications, label and prioritize emails, organize and store contacts, add events to your calendar, etc., the design process necessary to create an email service, even though it's technically a website with such a wide range of features, is significantly more involved than what would be necessary for your local corner coffee shop, even though they are both websites. So that's how I distinguish the difference between a brochure-style website and a product and service. Now, to clarify, I want to explain how I envision the difference between a product and a service. So, going back to my previous examples of Evernote, Todoist, and Blackboard as an example of products, basically, these are products are tools that you use to create something, you use them to track something. Um, to build something. They're essentially a tool that's used to make you more productive, um, seemingly. So how you visually design um, for a tool to complete a task is very different than how you design a piece of visual communication that, you know, is meant to convey a message. Lift and order up, on the other hand, I like to define 
as services because they provide a service. When you go to their app or website, they provide you with a service. In this case, Lyft, you use to order a ride somewhere. Order up is, is food delivery. So in order for the visual designer to create the necessary elements for a service, they need to intimately understand the actual service from the beginning all the way to the end in order to design the proper visual experience. While the design process for both products and services may be similar, it's important to identify the distinction between them to fully highlight how much the role of the graphic designer has changed in the past 10 years. So instead of designing static visuals, designers need to focus on entire experiences of the user and figure out how to enhance the, um, their experience to create a need for the product or service. This is where the frontier for design education is. User experience design, which I'm actually going to you know, touch on a little bit later with one of my takeaways. All right, so here is takeaway number four. Design is a team sport, again. With the industry creating a lot of new tools for collaboration, it signaled another thing I wasn't fully aware of, but was obvious once I thought about it. Design firms are forgoing brick and mortar buildings for a more nomadic existence. Happy Cog is a recent example of an established interactive design firm with a large workspace in downtown Philadelphia that they closed in favor of getting a membership to a co-working space for employees who didn't want to work from home. Now everyone works remotely at Happy Cog. Havas Helia is another example of a firm with a non-traditional working model. In this case, remote teams or units. With many locations throughout North America and the United Kingdom, Havas Helia's offices don't repeat the skills in each office. Rather, each location has its own speciality. For example, advertising design and development for ads on websites is actually done in Baltimore, Maryland. And, but, and general branding for, the organiz, you know, for whatever organization they're, they're working for is done in Chicago, Illinois. So another example of this team collaboration approach is the firm Super Friendly, headed by Dan Mall, who happened to be my first guest on this podcast. His firm is just him. It's just Dan Mall being himself. But he has a long list of designers, front-end developers, engineers, content strategists, information architects, um, user experience designers, the list goes on and on, that he contracts with on an as-need basis depending on the needs of his actual client. So people working in different locations on the same project has only increased the need for specialization and all but removed the status of the solo rock star designer from the industry so that 
solo rock star just doesn't really exist anymore. Again, going back to being design has become a team sport again. Um, This specialization has also led to the proliferation of job titles within the interactive design industry. If you look through many of the job boards, you will find dozens of titles, including graphic designer, production designer, interactive designer, product designer, service designer, digital designer, visual designer, user interface designer, front-end developer, um, user experience designer, front-end designer, interaction designer. I mean, the list just goes on and on. So this is making things even more confusing considering that many of these titles share very similar job descriptions. They share very similar skill requirements and they generally ask for a very similar educational background. All of these job descriptions, despite the actual job title, ask for the potential hire to know UI software such as Sketch and production software like Adobe Creative Cloud. They also ask for an understanding of HTML and CSS and the ability to conduct prototyping, user research, and usability, and everybody expects you to have some type of visual portfolio. So on the surface, all these jobs look like they're the same exact job. But what they really are is a group of closely related professions that benefit from the overlap of knowing each other's unique discipline. Therefore, the common skills are actually ingredients in a recipe, and each job title requires a different amount of each ingredient to produce the desired result. For example, Digital and visual designers will require a much higher proficiency of the design software and stronger visual portfolio that includes branding, app and web designs, and prototyping. But their HTML and CSS skills will only need to be at a level where they work well with a front-end developer who will be primarily doing the coding. User experience designers need to know user research, usability, prototyping, amongst a lot of other skills necessary to understand human behavior, but they also need to have a general understanding of visual design so the user experience designer can work with designers to ensure that the final product stays on point if they see that the visuals don't actually match up to the desired message or deliver on the key performance indicators. I could go over the exact balance of skills necessary for each job title, but it would be overkill. The underlying theme is that no one person can create the entire project by themselves anymore. Not even the mythical unicorn, the designer who can also code. The unicorn who can design and code at a high level is then potentially missing the necessary user experience skills to do in-depth user research, content strategy experience, user testing. Um, The bottom line is contemporary design is a team sport, much like it was pre-computer, where you had typesetters, layout artists, graphic designers, etc., who were all necessary for the production of a piece of design. 
All right. On to the final takeaway. Takeaway number five, design systems and process. Design in its modern context has led to a change to the traditional design process to account for these new working methods. Before I began my research, when I would design a website, I would focus on the entire page, not individual elements within the page. I would treat the design of a web page much like I would treat the design of a poster. Holistically, I would focus on the sum of its parts and how they interacted instead of focusing on individual elements within the poster. I taught this approach to my students as well, asking them to go from wireframes to sketches to computer renderings of the entire web page. For my research, designing with a whole page approach isn't the norm in the industry. Rather, most designers I talk to designed elements of a page that then create a design system. The design system is also referred to in the industry as atomic design or pattern libraries. And, and there's quite a few more names floating out there, but they're all kind of the same in regards to what I'm talk, referring to. So once the system of page elements that includes such things as navigation, buttons, lists, headlines, styling of the body copy, and images is created, then a web page could be quickly created by putting the patterns together to form a page. And then the pages could be put together to form a website. It's basically built from the inside out. This method drastically changes the client designer dynamic as well. When showing a web page to the client for approval, clients will often get hung up on the individual elements within the page, but not the overall page layout. However, clients would nix an entire concept because they were unhappy with a specific element, not the actual entire design. So by designing a system first, you get approval from the client on the element level. Then when the elements are combined to make pages, then an entire site, there is no need for client reapproval because they already approved the system. They know what's going, what it's eventually going to build out. So now I have my students work using the same process. Once my students created the initial design concept, they move on to creating what Dan Mall has coined um, element collages. Element collages are simply collages of the potential elements that will be included on an artboard with multiple iterations of each element. This forces the students to focus on the design at the atomic level. Once they have completed their element collages, they can move on to wireframes, which is where they place these elements, then incorporate the, and incorporate those elements into the wireframes that give a complete page. Um, another takeaway from these interviews has to do with the actual interactive design process. It seems like everyone is doing it differently, which was a bit frustrating since one of the goals of this podcast was to find a common design process. However, I did conclude that while everyone is doing things differently, 
everyone is also looking at their own process right now to make them better. And they're documenting that. So if you look at the popular interactive design conferences, such as an event apart, which I highly recommend you go to generate, I highly recommend you go to as well. Um, Smashing conferences I've heard is another good one. Haven't personally been. And another one I haven't been to, but heard rave reviews about was web design day. Um, So when you go to one of these conferences, you will see a lot of the talks center around improvements improvements to a very specific part of the design process one of them for example was samantha warren who is currently experienced design manager at adobe she gave a talk at an event apart a few years ago um, about the early stages of the interactive design process where a lot of work went into initial design cops concepts that didn't fully flush out Um, what the client expectations were. So this process led to, this traditional process led to bigger problems down the road when clients were unhappy with specific parts of the website design that weren't addressed early on. So to avoid having to design an entire website just to convey a concept in the early stages, Samantha devised a process called Style Tiles. It's sort of similar to mood boards where common elements on a website are put into a single artboard in a way to convey the concept of the design. But they are, there is a, but they, and, and why you may seem like this is something you already do, it's the conversation around the style tiles with the client that are much different than mood boards. And as I already mentioned earlier, um, one thing that's it came out from these podcasts is that students are obviously not prepared to have conversations with clients. So this is where the style tiles kind of help frame those conversations um, for students and clients. For example, showing a style tile that conveys the concept of being funny to the client and asking if they don't like it um, isn't a good conversation Um, if they like it or not asking if they like it or not isn't a good conversation because you're just assuming that if they don't like it that that means that they don't like funny Um, so you don't want to move away from that style tile and you don't want to move away from that conversation you really want to dive deep you want to ask them why the style tile that they created isn't funny Um, ask them how do they perceive what's funny because you can make the argument well arguably the shows Seinfeld and South Park are both very funny but they are funny in an almost entirely polar opposite way and it's entirely possible that one person doesn't perceive the show South Park funny where somebody else does. So through the conversation with the client and rapidly creating these style tiles and the style tiles are just basically um, small artboards that have examples of the color palette, examples of the typography, examples of how images are used and you know, some of the, maybe some key elements such as buttons, etc. Um, 
by showing these style tiles to um, the client um, and asking them how they are or how they aren't funny, you can like rapidly prototype and rapidly get to what the concept, what the overall um, look and feel of the website should be like. And then you would take that and you go into the element collage process. And so if you teach the students to have these like conversations early on and often with the client, you know, that when the client does get the big reveal at the end, they're not surprised because they've seen this thing solely built out in front of them um, along the way. Um, so there is another step in this process that overlaps m the many of the ones that I just uh, discussed. And maybe it shouldn't even be described as a step. And that's in creating a design system. Uh a design system is very different from creating a branding guide where you set the standard for the logo use, um, the typography, and the color palette. The way the design systems are being used in contemporary design are more like the robust um, unigrid system created by Massimo Vignelli for the National Park Service. Not only did this system consist of typography, logo use, color palette. It also had a grid system, a series of cards, elements such as headlines, text, image, historical fact charts, timelines, etc. Basically, it was an enormous list of ingredients um, that gave enough um, elements and instruction to create any necessary visual design piece that could potentially be conceived of down the road by the National Park Service. Um, Brad Frost, another one of my guests, formalized this process for the web and coined it atomic design. So in atomic design, every element on a page can be broken down into atoms, like a headline is an atom, an image is an atom, a form input field is an atom, a button is an atom, a search box is an atom, and I mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, then those atoms would be combined to create a molecule. That molecule could be a series of input atoms used to create an entire form used to collect credit card information. Or a molecule could be combined, could be a combination of text and image and headline to form a preview for an item for sale on Amazon. In the next phase, atomic design, molecules are combined to form organisms. For an example, a series of product previews is combined into a list of products for sale. Another example is a shipping address molecule is combined with a billing address molecule and a credit card information molecule to form a checkout form. And just like with the Unigrid system, when atoms, molecules, and organisms are combined with a grid and a visual identity guidelines, you have a template that can then be used to create individual web pages. Then those web pages are combined to form entire websites. When the atomic design approach is applied correctly, the client has a guide to not only build a website that meets their current needs, but it's also a future friendly and allows them to expand when necessary. Also, another part of these design systems is animations or micro 
interactions. Uh, so basically, you think of those like if you enter in the form wrong, it shakes. Um, how does the information move in and out of the screen? Um, all these things are what I like to consider micro interactions or animations. So those are also built into this design system. And so, and right now, and actually, organizations are actually hiring. Um, a good example. I, I wish I can't. I can't remember the the exact name of the company off the top of my head. But there was a company who hired um, a firm, and I believe it was super friendly to create a design system. Now this 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 organization already had its own in house team of designers, so they didn't need um, them, and they already had in house developers, so they didn't need you know the the building of the website. What they they what they needed though is the creation of this system that their in-house design and development team could use as a guideline, as use as a you know set of ingredients to you know to fully bake their website. And so that's happening a lot where firms, companies um, are seeking out individuals to create that design system that they will then take themselves and further um, you know to create their own whatever their needs are. So that's it for the design systems uh, or to pull a forest gump. Well, that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> all right. So those are the top five takeaways. I got these past two years from conducting the interviews. I hope you find them as insightful and helpful for what you do in the classroom, just as much as I did. Um, don't forget that I'll be on hiatus as I review the previous episodes and write more in-depth show notes for them for the website redesign. My hope is to get this done by early September, but I'll keep you posted. All right, so that's all I wanted to share with you on episode 47 of Design EDU today. I want to thank the audience for listening for these past two years, and I want to thank the Design EDA Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases, or when I get back to them, you can follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like the Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, Contact me through the i through the Twitter or through the show's email address, which is at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.